Hey friends, the time has once again arrived for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today we are going to take a hard look at ourselves. At human selfhood, I mean, human selfhood itself. This feeling, this inner spark or organizing principle that we spend so much of our lives nurturing, building up, sustaining, struggling with, and sometimes trying to get over, where does it come from? Why does it feel so unshakable and so shaky at the very same time? Is it real at all, or is it uh, maybe just a fairy tale, a story pasted together from bits of experience and memory, a yarn spun by our ever-confabulating brains? Is there, in fact, some special neural machinery in there whose function it is to generate a sense of self in us? Well, those are some of the questions explored in a new book by my guest on the show, the science writer Anil Swamy. The book is called The Man Who Wasn't There, Investigations into the Strange New Science of the Self. Anil is particularly interested in various neurological syndromes that alter and occasionally screw with our sense of self. They happen to be some of the weirdest mental conditions that I've ever heard about, and some of the most head-spinning to contemplate and discuss, which is exactly what we're going to do in the hour ahead. Stay tuned. Anil, reading your book reminded me that um, just because we have a word for something doesn't mean that we know what it means or even that it means one thing as opposed to many. You're referring, obviously, to the self. I am referring to the self. As I read this book about investigations into the self by neuroscientists and psychologists and uh, all kinds of maladies that affect our sense of self, it reminds me all over again that we mean a lot of different things when we say self. Uh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, depending on whom you ask, you're going to get a slightly different answer. And even if you were to read about the self, read uh, philosophers and neuroscientists and theologians, you're going to get again you know, a somewhat different uh, picture of what the sense of self is or what the self is. There's a slight difference between the sense of self and the self mm. within philosophy. Like, for instance, if you go back to William James, you know, he divided the self up into three main categories, the material uh, me, the spiritual self, and the social self. And I think there was a recent paper in the last five years or 10 years that actually tried to count the number of ways you can Slice and dice the self, and I think the number ran into the 20s. <laughs> well, we'll try to keep the number a little lower in this conversation. I'm interested, though, in, in how you got into this subject. I think the last time you and I talked, five years ago, it was about your previous book, The Edge of Physics. At the end, you and I were chatting after the interview was done, and you were telling me a little bit about your interest in this subject, I think. Um, yeah, I think this is a subject I have been kind of uh, interested in since my late 20s possibly because of what one is going through in one's life. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I think, uh, having grown up in India, uh, you know, if you think about the religions that come from that land, Buddhism, Hinduism, they really are fundamentally concerned about the nature of the self and their particular answers to who am I, the question who am I, they, their theologies spring forth from their particular answers to that question. So I think if you're growing up in India and if you have even the slightest philosophical inclination to ask this question, there are many, many people who are waiting to give you their own brand of answers. Did you grow up with any beliefs about it? Um, not so much 
beliefs as much as just uh, ideas swirling around because, you know, for instance, uh, the notion of the search for one's self or one's true self is very much a part of the philosophical side of Indian culture. You know, people, you know, whether you read mythology or stories, there are always characters who are running away trying to find themselves. So it's there in the background somehow. Mm. But, you know, in your 20s and early 30s or even, you know, 40s, what these things mean to you are kind of different. In each decade of your life, the search for the self means something else. Well, this particular search um, that you went on uh, that resulted in this book is based on your background as a science writer, and you are, as the title implies, looking into neuroscientific approaches and psychological and cognitive science approaches to the idea of the self, using a, a time-honored method of understanding the workings of the brain by seeing what happens when things break. Yeah. Is there a name for that? It is such a you know, fundamental part of neuroscience. I don't know if there's a name for that. I haven't thought about that. You know, a lot of what we've learned about the functionality of the brain has to do with people who've had some sort of trauma, either mm -hmm. because of a stroke mm -hmm. or injury. There's been a loss of functionality, and then, you know, you correlate the loss of functionality with the damage to the brain and figure out, you know, what certain parts do. We've learned a lot about the brain that way. Uh, and in some sense, uh, I was thinking similarly about uh, the self. I was thinking about uh, situations in which our self is somehow changed or perturbed or disturbed, whatever the language you want to use, um, and using these disturbances as windows on the self. You know, So, yeah, you're right. I think in some sense the approach is very, very standard within neuroscience. Mm -hmm. As if we were looking at a computer and saying, I don't know how this gadget works, but what if I just uh, remove this circuit or this circuit or this circuit? Um, that approach has its dangers, I'm sure, but you have a, a nice list here of disorders. They include Cotard's delusion or Cotard's syndrome, depersonalization, body integrity, identity disorder, Alzheimer's, that's one people will recognize, schizophrenia, autism, and then out-of-body experiences. That, folks, is our menu for this conversation. <laughs> and ecstatic epilepsy. Oh, yes, ecstatic epilepsy. You can't forget that. I don't forget uh, that. I mean, I, I do want to make one sort of statement before we talk about, uh, you know, these conditions. I, I remember when I started writing the proposal for this book, I had the word mental disorders in the subtitle. And, you know, throughout the writing of this book and during the course of meeting a lot of people who were so kind to tell me about their own lives, I think that phrase just dropped out of my kind of thinking. And in a sense, I just want to kind of refer to these as conditions, not having any value judgment about, you know, what it means in, in terms of how the culture refers to it. I think uh, it, it's important to somewhere see everyone who is suffering from these conditions as someone who is suffering, rather than saying someone is autistic, uh, I think uh, begin to start saying someone suffering from autism, I think there is a slight difference in f calling someone autistic versus saying someone is suffering from autism. And um, even that word suffering may not be the right one in all cases. Um, yeah, depending on the severity of the condition, yeah, it, it may not even be the right word. You're absolutely right. And uh, so basically, uh, it's hard. We don't necessarily have the language uh, in, in, in our culture to adequately talk about these things without implying Something is wrong. Disease. Yeah. 
Yeah. I did a long uh, interview with um, Gary Greenberg, the author of uh, The Book of Woe, which is a – I don't know if you've read it. but it's a, I haven't. It's a history and critique of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the uh, American Psychiatric Association, the sort of handbook they use to classify illnesses. And it's been through – I think it's in its fifth edition now uh, – every one of them changing the list of diseases and their, and their uh, definitions because it turns out – Describing mental illness is definitely based on cultural assumptions about what's wrong and what's right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's constantly changing. And, of course, politics plays into it. Uh, economics plays into it because by classifying things as diseases, you change their status from the point of view of medical insurance and so on. Right. So it's a very complicated business. But uh, I'll do my best to mind the rules that you've set out for us. So I'll, I'll not call these pathologies. I'll try not to call them uh, diseases or disorders, but conditions. Right. Let's talk some conditions, Anil. Yep. Um, among the, the, the most bizarre sounding to me, uh, but maybe not so much to you, you and I were talking before this interview, you, you don't find it all that bizarre, is Qatar's syndrome or Qatar's delusion. Hmm. Um, this is one where the people who have it um, think they're dead? Yeah, they. I, um, so this is a condition that was named after a French doctor. He identified a set of symptoms in the late 1800s, and uh, and it came to be called Cotard syndrome. The doctor was Jules Cotard. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of symptoms are actually quite uh, revealing of what's happening. Uh, one is that people feel like some parts of their body uh, uh, are missing. So they'll say things like, my uh, teeth are missing, my you know, stomachs missing. Sometimes they will even smell their flesh putrefying, which is uh, which is very odd. But again, um, I think one thing to point out here is that this is a very rare condition. In in the medical literature, there are probably just a few hundred cases that have been recorded. So it's not something that's common. In um, but the most characteristic symptom of uh, uh, Cotard's is the belief that they are dead, that they don't exist. So the person suffering from Cotard's will insist that, you know, in some form, they don't exist. In certain cases, they will start planning their own funeral. The reason why I think I don't see it as bizarre anymore, maybe when I first encountered it, it might have seemed like that. But, you know, the more I read about it and the more I talked to the doctors, uh, one of the things that it's comorbid with is extreme depression. Mm. So, you know, when you realize that the person with Cotards actually is severely depressed sometimes, you know, it's a condition in which someone's emotional underpinning has been knocked out from beneath them. And the depression is even worse than what, you know, we would normally think of as clinically depressed. Uh, there was a French uh, psychiatrist that I met in Paris who drew me a line diagram of uh, sort of, you know, how depression rates uh, in comparison to other things that we know. So on the left, he um, you know, marked normal, and then he had sad, melancholic, depressed, very depressed, all sort of linear progressions. And then he had a series of dots as if it, the progression was not linear anymore. And then at the end of it, he had good words. I think what's striking about it, uh, from my perspective, is that as one of the psychiatrists you talked to who knows something about the syndrome said, they cross a line from a kind of simile where we might find ourselves saying, oh, I feel like I'm dead or I might as well be dead to true metaphor where they say I am dead and yeah. insist on it, that yeah. I am clinically dead. Yeah. 
Despite well, the clinically, it may not be. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think it's one of those funny things. They, they, you know, for instance, one particular case that I write about, uh, the person has a very specific notion of what uh, has died. He he insists he's brain dead. Ah, yes. Um, uh, and uh, the doctor, you know, has these conversations with him about, uh, you know, look, you're talking to me, you can see, you can hear, you can reason with me, and uh, so your mind is alive. And he says, yes, my mind is alive, but then, no, but my brain is dead. So he has a very specific notion of what has died. Mm-hmm. Well, this is one of a number of uh, conditions that you researched and uh, where you actually met people who've had the condition, as well as specialists uh, who treat it or study it, um, that results in a weakening of the sense of self. Yes, I think so. What seems to be happening here is that there are two uh, kind of sets of changes happening in the brain. One has to do with a very diminished perception of one's own emotional state and body and bodily feelings. So in some sense, uh, if you're just thinking about the body, then you're not perceiving your own emotional state and body states with a kind of clarity and vividness that you're used to. Uh, and again, that's something we don't normally question. We just, we are what we are, and then, then something like this happens. And looks like what's happening is because of that lack of perception uh, of one's own body and emotional states, there's a perception of non-existence that seems to arise within you they also seem to have uh, damage to certain parts of the brain that are involved in rational thought. So normally, if you had an irrational feeling arise in you, you would, uh, you know, tend to knock it down. Whereas here, they, they have this uh, other problem of not being able to rationally refute their own perception. Mm-hmm. So this two-factor explanation for what might be happening. Now, what is the difference between that and depersonalization? Syndrome. So depersonalization is a situation, again, it's something that some of us would have experienced in a transitory way. If you have severe jet lag, for instance, there is this feeling occasionally that things are not real. You don't quite feel grounded. Things around you, the environment, your own body sometimes just feels slightly unreal and you feel detached a little bit. But it's transient. It'll go away as soon as the jet lag wears off. Now, you can imagine that that becomes chronic for certain people or lasts for, you know, weeks, months, years on end. And it's it's a state in which they feel disconnected again from their own body and uh, emotions. I mean, you're right. I think there is a, you know, some similarity with Cotard's. I would imagine Cotard's is much more severe in the sense that the lack of uh, vividness of your own emotions must be very, very severe for that perception of non-existence to even arise in your conscious awareness. Um Depersonalization, people say that they, it feels like they're walking around as if they're in a dream. So something is disconnected. So in a sense, the observing self, the I, whatever you want to call that, uh, is disconnected from the emotional part of you or some sort of connection you need with your own body states. And the feeling that seems to bring about is living as if you're living in a dream. Um which um, sounds pleasant, but it's not at all. And, you know, the people that I've talked to uh, are really very, very uh, disturbed by it. And it leads to, you know, panic attacks. And uh, it's, yeah, it's very debilitating if it persists. So once again, uh, a syndrome where the uh, the sense of self is sort of chipped away at, the integrity of the self uh, starts to disintegrate a little bit. And there's another condition we mentioned at the outset, Body Integrity Identity Disorder, BIID. Hmm. Now, this one, if I understand it right, is a problem with the boundaries 
of what we normally think of as ourselves, our physical selves. Our bodily self, yeah. Our bodily self. Yeah. We usually have a, a pretty clearly <laughs> defined boundary that ends at our skin, right? Right. right. <laughs> but these folks, and I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's not funny at all. But folks who have this, uh, this condition, they draw the lines elsewhere. Yeah, so one of the things that seems to happen in BIID is this sense that some part of your body, and usually they tend to be extremities of your limbs, or some part of your leg, some part of your arm, that feel as if they don't belong to you. So, you know, normally if you, like you said, if you uh, think about your own body, look down at your own body, they, you don't have any doubt that every part of it is yours. And it's as if uh, something foreign is part of you. And, you know, you would think that if some part of your body is not yours, the brain would actually pay less attention to it. It's quite the opposite. Uh, it's, in fact, turns out there are some early studies that show that what's happening is that the brain is actually paying more attention to that body part. And, uh, you know, because something foreign is attached to you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that seems to wear them down because it's literally, you know, uh, wasted brain resources just constantly paying attention to some part of you that feels alien to you. You know, it makes sense to me if you have a growth, if you have some kind of excrescence on your body, if you have something attached to it that's not you, it can drive you crazy. You obsess about it. Yeah. And, but the problem here is that people are feeling this way about, let's say, their leg below the knee or their arm below the elbow. Yeah. That's or, not or mine. Or above the elbow or, or above, above the, the knee. Elbow. Yeah, it could yeah. be. That's not mine. It's a, it's a gross thing that's attached to me. Get rid of it. Yeah. And what's, uh, what's intriguing is that many of them will say that there's a very clear line where that demarcation is. Uh, so it could be below the knee or above the knee or above the elbow, below the elbow. And uh, the neuroscientists who have studied this say that, you know, that's one of the indications that this is probably a neurological condition. Uh, you know, to get such a clear demarcation on your leg saying, okay, something below this is not mine, something above this is mine, it gives you some clue as to what might be happening in the brain. You know, I've talked about this condition before, but under a very different name, and mm. I can't even pronounce it right, Apotem apotemnophilia. Apotemnophilia, yeah. because this same condition was branded a what's technically called a paraphilia, right. a fetish, right. sexual fetish, by some psychologists because it can have a sexual dimension. As yeah. I understand it. Right. It, it can, yeah. And, and I actually talked about this in an interview I did with Jesse Baring, the, the psychologist. I think it's still his most recent book uh, called Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, hmm. talking about varieties of sexual attraction and experience and how unbelievably hmm. varied human beings are. But you describe it as having nothing to do with sex, really having to do with the body map, the internal map of our body uh, that tells us, you know, uh, what's ours and what isn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't dwell on the the sexual aspect of it, they, I mean, you're right. It, it is correlated with, uh, you know, sexual desires sometimes, not with everyone. And that's also an indication that it's not just about sexual desire because not everyone who is suffering from BIID has uh, a sexual desire for, you know, amputees, for instance. So I, I was looking at it purely from the perspective of what does this tell us about our sense of the body? Like, you know, how does the brain create the bodily self? Can you explain this condition by understanding maybe something about the creation of the sense of one's own body? And actually, uh, it helps to think about the converse of this uh, condition, which is uh, phantom limbs. You know, this is something mm -hmm. that most people would be 
well aware of by now. Uh, if you have an amputation, uh, you know, because of an accident or some, you know, infection or injury or something, a um, lot of people will say that soon after the amputation, they tend to still perceive their old limb. They still feel like they have the leg or the arm that was amputated. Some people, for some people, that sensation never goes away. And in some more people, they even continue to feel pain in this imaginary limb, right? So what that is telling you is that the limb that you perceive or the body part that you perceive, even though it's been amputated, you're continuing to feel it. What you're perceiving is some representation of the body part in your brain, not the physical uh, limb, which is now not there anymore. So at least that's one explanation that neuroscientists have given us uh, about what might be happening. And it kind of makes sense. Uh, oh, it does, uh, yeah. So, uh, and BIID can be thought of as the opposite, the mirror image problem of that, where you have the limb fully functional, healthy in all respects, you know, uh, but something about the representation of that limb in your brain hasn't quite caught up or is not, you know, there's a mismatch between the representation and the actual limb. And just like in phantom limbs, your perception of it depends on the information in your brain. And that is what is your reality, not the physical limb. And and that reality is what dictates, you know, what your bodily self is. So uh, in that sense, um, I didn't feel like uh, looking at the sexual aspect of, aspect of it was particularly relevant to understanding this part of mm. the condition. Mm. Well, people who have the phantom limb syndrome uh, have a, uh, a erroneous body map. They think the limb is still out there. And often that limb is, uh, if I remember right, from reading V.S. Ramachandran, the uh, neuroscientist who you also talked to, who's quite famous for his explorations and, and some of the treatments he's come up with for phantom limb syndrome. If I remember right, they often have an image of that limb in a cramped and uncomfortable position maybe because that's the position it was in when the limb was amputated or before the limb was amputated. Yeah, possibly, yeah. And he has been able, um, at least in some cases, to help people sort of redraw that internal map by sort of tricking them visually into mm. thinking that the limb is still there using mirrors and stuff. Right. I, now, the people who have BIID, they have the opposite problem. They think this um, the limb that's actually theirs is not theirs and that it's attached to them, a foreign body, and it drives them nuts. And the only cure for some of them is amputation. Um, in fact, you met one guy who you call David. Yeah. You even accompanied him to get uh, surreptitious amputation somewhere in Asia uh, You know, from a doctor who's willing to do this for these people in order to give them some relief. Yeah, I did. I, I, you know, spoke to him before his uh, amputation and soon after. Yeah, his leg. Yeah, his leg. Um, first of all, how did you find him, and how were you able to make this connection? He he's very private about this. Understandably, the operation is probably illegal because medical institutions don't typically recognize this as a disease for which the proper treatment is amputation. So uh, um, I'm not at liberty to tell you more about Oh, him. I wasn't uh, asking you to s yeah. spill any secrets, but you did some real detective work uh, to make this book. It was just, uh, you know, going from one contact to another, and uh, it wasn't uh, that difficult. Um, but, uh, yeah, I can't tell you, I can't reveal much more about him. But he allowed you to go with him. You weren't in the operating room, but you were right outside of it, I guess? Yeah, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't in the operating room, no. I was in the ward where he was uh, being set up to, yeah, go to the and it oh. worked. It worked. The doctor may have been breaking rules and may have been taking huge risks uh, <laughs> with his medical license or maybe even his personal freedom. But uh, they they did it. And this person you call David has been much happier ever since he had his leg removed. Um, 
I think so. I mean, I, you know, he seemed happier immediately after the amputation. And then I exchanged emails with him uh, a few months later, and he said he had no regrets. You know, a lot of people you write about who had BID mm. do get some real relief from having their limbs amputated. Seems like it. I mean, that's, uh, there have been some studies done looking at, uh, uh, you know, people many years after they've had uh, the amputation. And by and large, it seems like they don't have regrets. Hmm. And there's also this worry that, you know, they'll have one amputation and then they'll come back for another and, you know, so on. It's, uh, but it doesn't seem to be. As long as the BID is, you know, if, if they feel it in one, for one limb, then that's all they seek. It's not like they have one amputation and then they want another. And it's then not compulsive. Uh, doesn't seem to be. I mean, the problem with BID is, you know, it's not studied well enough to understand all the facets of it. it I think uh, you know, it's not in the DSM, for instance, which which means you don't get research funding. Mm-hmm. And so there are neuroscientists, very you know, serious neuroscientists. For instance, V.S. Ramachandran's group has studied BID, and uh, there's a the chief of neuropsychology at University Hospital Zurich, uh, Peter Brugger, he's done a lot of uh, studies on this. So there are people seriously interested in understanding what's happening here, but I think it probably needs a lot more uh, for you know in terms of scientific studies to really get beneath what's happening here. Hmm. Uh, Peter Brugger, right? I'm remembering that uh, you know he has done work on our sense of being located in our bodies, having clear boundaries and all of that. And he, he could do some things with visual trickery to try to uh, induce a sense of being out, yeah. out of our bodies or dislocated. Yeah. He tried that on you. This was an experiment he had done on himself many, you know, more than a decade ago uh, or even more, I think, maybe 15 years ago. And so when I went to see him, we tried doing the same experiment, which is basically you put on a pair of virtual reality goggles and uh, and he stands behind you or someone stands behind you with a video camera, say about, you know, uh, three meters behind you and starts filming you from behind. And that video feed is fed into your virtual reality goal. So what you are seeing is yourself from behind and then you start walking around. Oh, and it the sounds pers- like it would just give you a case of seasickness or In something. In the beginning, it's very disorienting. Yeah. I mean, nothing happened to me because we didn't have enough of a long enough lead between my virtual reality goggles and the camera. We didn't even have a proper camera, so we were using my laptop uh, to film myself. So it didn't quite work with me. But when he had done it on himself, he had someone with a proper video camera filming him from behind. For an entire day, he walked around doing various things. And he was always watching himself doing the same thing from behind. Uh, And that caused a dislocation in his sense of where he was. And, uh, you know, it was a kind of -of out-of-body experience. I think there's a similar kind of um, experiment that can be done with two people, um, both with virtual reality goggles, each seeing what the other sees. So when you look down, you see not your your arms, but this other person's arms. Mm. And that, too, can give you this sense that your body's over there or that your body has changed. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. And, of course, there's the rubber hand illusion. Right. Want to explain that for us? Yeah, it's actually a very simple and a classic neuroscience experiment. So you start with uh, putting, say, your left hand on a table, rest very sort of easily so that there's no kind of stress in your arm, put a rubber hand next to it, which kind of looks real to some extent, and then you put a kind of screen between your real hand and the rubber hand so that you don't see your real hand, you can only see the rubber hand. 
have someone take two paintbrushes and stroke both the real hand and the rubber hand simultaneously at exactly the same spa- uh, places on the hand at exactly the same speed, so synchronous stroking. And within about two minutes of doing this, about two-thirds of the people are going to experience something really weird. Until the illusion sets in, you're feeling the touch on your real hand, as you should. But when the illusion sets in, suddenly you'll start feeling the touch at the location of the rubber hand. So it's a really bizarre uh, feeling. And it's it's telling you something about how the brain kind of constructs the sense of where your body is or you know what your body is. It's taking those visual inputs mm-hmm. and it's lining them up with those tactile inputs. Right. And it's locating locating them where it sees the the action happening. It's yeah, so, so one explanation, exactly. So one explanation for what might be happening is the brain normally has to integrate all the various sensations that it's receiving. So tactile, visual, auditory, um, you know, all the various senses that we have from the outside, from the inside. We have proprioception, vestibular, all sorts of you know, sensations that are coming into the brain. The brain has to integrate everything to create the sense of where your body is, you know, your sense of body ownership. So in this particular case, what's happening is it's getting conflicting information. It's getting tactile sensations from your real hand, uh, but then it's getting visual input suggesting that the touch is actually happening on the rubber hand, at the the location of the rubber hand. It so happens that vision is a much more important sensation. Uh, It's prioritized in the brain, it's and so the brain just kind of decides. Seeing is believing. Seeing is believing, mm. and it basically says, "Oh, the the hand must be at the location of the rubber hand," <laughs> and and you will feel it. I mean, if you're one of the lucky ones, uh, you know, the seventy percent of the people who can feel this illusion, it's quite spectacular. I think I first read about it in an article on th- fun things to do at a party: uh, bring people over, induce the rubber hand illusion, and then to cap things off, smash the rubber hand with a hammer. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that that again tells you something, right? And people feel pain, right? They don't feel pain. They they feel will panic. they they will yeah they will basically react very you know why would you react if somebody's taking a hammer to a rubber hand? But you do because in your brain, in your bodily self, it's part of you. So somebody is smashing you, and and you will just you know yank your hand off, which turns out to be the real hand uh, when you pull it off. But uh, but. You know, somebody's actually taken a hammer or a knife to the rubber hand, and it's uh, it's amazing how you react psychologically to that and physically. You just, yeah. I guess we shouldn't be terribly surprised because we are highly sensitive and sort of empathetic beings. I mean, I feel a kind of pain, not true physical pain perhaps, but I feel a kind of pain uh, when I see others in pain. I can have strong feelings for an image that's projected on a silver screen in a dark room, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, this is this is more specific though. I think yeah. what's happening here is that, you know, the 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 idea behind this is that your brain has a sense of or, or a model of your mm. own body. Mm. And when the illusion sets in, the rubber hand has somehow become part of that model. So it is you. Yeah. I mean as far as the as far as your bodily self is concerned as if, as far as your sense of self is concerned the rubber hand is now part of you know yourself. So when you're taking a hammer to it it's basically taking a hammer to you know any other part of your body you will react you know the brain will react to anything that threatens the self and that's what you do. Well, you know, speaking of hammers, tools become extensions of ourselves in some ways and the the more you use a tool and the closer you are to it like a musician using a you know bowing a violin or something. Yeah. Uh, okay, it's not absolutely part of their biological organism, but it is still a part of them. 
It is, and 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 there are experiments that show that you know you, if you, for instance, wear a really tall hat and walk around, and after a while, your sense of how tall you are changes, and and you will constantly be walking uh, through doorways and kind of bowing down so that you don't hit the top hat on on the you know even when uh, it's gone. Even when it's gone, yeah. for a while after it's gone, you will still keep doing that because your sense of how tall you are has changed. Mm. Well, this leads naturally into those other fantastical uh, varieties of bodily displacement, the um, out-of-body experiences, the doppelganger yeah. illusions. Yeah. Uh, tell us about those. In fact, you, you have a – I don't know what the precise relation is. He's the son of a cousin. My cousin's son, yeah, yeah. he experienced uh, uh, that. Uh, yeah, he had a uh, brain tumor, which kind of led to this uh, effect. It's called the doppelganger effect. He basically perceived another himself in front of him and had kind of this sense that the other himself was very sad, looking back at uh, his own life. Uh, in his case, there was no interaction between the self that was in the physical body and this doppelganger, but there are situations in which uh, the person who is experiencing this doppelganger effect uh, will find the location of one's self switching from the actual physical body to the illusory body that is in front and back and forth. And it's extremely distressing because suddenly you're dislocated. You're, you don't know where you are, who you are. Hmm. Well, how do you explain that? I mean, the, the body map problems that we've talked about so far seem pretty straightforward. So what might be happening here? I mean, this is, you know, at some level a bit of speculation because people are trying to imagine what must be happening in, in the brain. Now, uh, normally, if everything is working well, the brain has to create an image of your own body and uh, locate the sense of self, the I, uh, within that body. And it's possible what's happening here is that, you know, remember we have two hemispheres, uh, so it's possible that each part, each hemisphere is creating a body uh, image. And ideally, they should be integrated and you should feel that as one. Mm. But it's possible that somehow you have a second body image that has been created and somehow has got located geometrically in a, in a different part of the space around you. And, uh, and then the self has to be or the sense of the eye, I don't want to use the word self here because all of this goes into making the self, but yeah. the, the sense of an eye somehow shifts between the model of the body that is actually co-located with the physical body and the model of the body that is now somewhere outside the physical body. The uh, the internal image goes cross-eyed, and you see kind of a double image. No, I think um, what what really happens is they perceive another themselves in yeah, front. Yeah, so yeah. they're interacting with this double. So Absolutely, I, yeah. No, I just mean internally the images that are normally all lined oh, up. Oh, I see. Within the yeah. brain, you mean. Exactly, uh, within the brain, within the mind's uh, eye. Yeah, we, we, we actually don't know yeah. really what's happening, but this is you know a kind of speculation about what might be happening, why you might end up with. If you accept the fact that what you perceive to be your body is some sort of information, some sort of map or a model in the brain. Now, once you accept that, then you can imagine... Uh, processing going slightly wrong and you ending up with two models uh, or two images and then one image being located geometrically outside the exactly, space yeah. of your body. And yeah. Although one would be accurate in the sense that by locating myself here, uh, that aligns with all the perceptions I have, my point of view, which mm -hmm. is located here. If I had a mm -hmm. doppelganger illusion and I imagined myself across the room, I could not physically see from that vantage from the illusory vantage, I would have a lot less information coming from that position 
Yeah, we don't we don't have a clear indication of what is happening in terms of the visual input. The the experience that people narrate is basically their vantage point is sometimes from within the physical body and sometimes from this illusory body. Now, no one's really analyzed exactly what they see from the other body. You yeah. know, it's like, it's the same thing with an out of body experience. Right? Yeah. When when you're observing self somehow leaves the body or, 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 you know, the perspective is from outside the physical body. People tend to report as if they're really seeing something from outside. But, you know, the scientific explanation for that is you're still perceiving things from within your mind. You're essentially perceiving information in your brain. Uh, and, it you know, the brain has switched the perspective from being inside your head, looking out from behind your eyes, you know, which is in the physical body, to something outside. So geometrically, you end up somewhere outside. But the information that you perceive is still in your brain. Right. And, you know, if I were trying to imagine how I would see myself from outside myself right now, I could paint a little picture. It wouldn't be terribly accurate, though. It wouldn't be like looking in a mirror. It wouldn't be. And But, but we all are capable of that. And that's the interesting bit. Like, mm-hmm. uh, if you were to imagine some episode that you, you know, were part of, say you were on the beach recently, when you're actually experiencing being on the beach, you have the first-person perspective that you normally have. But when you imagine it, you actually tend to look at yourself from the outside. There, mm-hmm. there are mechanisms within the brain that look at your own experience from outside. Mm. So, you know, the brain can do a whole bunch of things to change perspective. And, uh, and it seems like in outer body experiences, some of those other mechanisms are coming into play where you're able to look at the same scene, but from the outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, taking your best guess, essentially, because you don't have visual information coming from anywhere but your own eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, again, it's it's uh, it's uh, the way to look at this is what you are perceiving is again information that has been modeled within your brain. Yes, right. And now, once there is a model, and the brain has to choose the perspective, and normally it'll give you a perspective that fits with the way we experience the world, but it can just as well put the perspective slightly outside of the, you know, outside your body. And uh, all of this makes sense if you start thinking in terms of information modeling within the brain. Right. Um, one thing that stands out in many of these uh, conditions and these descriptions you give in your book is that, as we know, the brain is really, really good, or maybe I should say the mind. I know we get really sloppy when using these two terms uh, interchangeably. Maybe I'll say the, the mind. I want to be really safe. But the mind is really good at filling in gaps with explanations and um, narrations even when it doesn't have information. Mm-hmm. And it will often force fit its own, its own descriptions in a way that totally convinces the subject, even when it doesn't have the information. So you can trick people in all kinds of ways yeah. with these uh, cognitive experiments. Um, people who, have a, who are split-brain patients whose hemispheres, whose right and left hemispheres have been severed uh, um, and who, who literally whose right side doesn't know what the – left side is doing and right. so on, right. um, you know, who, who can't see what their left hand is doing will still invent explanations for why it did what it did, which right. are totally wrong. Yeah. Um, and I say invent explanations, but they believe them completely. Right. You know, right. in fact, it's, it's as though they witnessed something that they didn't witness. Right. You describe people who have paralysis they don't know about and fill in the gap with 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 fabricated information right all right i mean or if you want to take um, you know something uh, like alzheimer's disease where people are unaware of their own condition 
right? When, when a lot of people with Alzheimer's will not know or, and will not agree to the fact that they have Alzheimer's because uh, something about the way uh, their brain is functioning at that point uh, doesn't give them an insight into their own condition. So, yeah, at that point, the brain is confabulating. I mean, so if you tell them that mm-hmm. they have, they will deny it completely. You know, it's not just denial. It's the fact that people often with these conditions will come up with explanations that yes. they're yes. convinced are true, which are completely imaginary. Right. And so maybe this applies to schizophrenia as well. Um, in, in schizophrenia, among the many, you know, symptoms is hearing voices. Right. I mean, either imagining voices in your head or even hearing them as though they're auditory. They're actually talking to you right. through your ears. Right. You know, you can maybe explain the best theories of how this happens. But in any case, the explanation that's come up with is often a paranoid one, you know, that the CIA has implanted a chip in my brain or something right. like that's, that. That's the – so a lot of people with schizophrenia do hear voices. It's, it actually yeah. has an auditory yeah. quality to yeah. it. It's not an imagined voice. It's right. actually – to them, it feels like a real voice inside mm-hmm. their head that is talking to them or uh, talking about them. So, you know, whether it's a second person or third person voice. So it's very, very real. It's, uh, and, and, I, I, and the general idea here is that the paranoia comes after this. So in some sense, the, the voices come about first and then the rationalization, mm. you know, post-hearing voices begins. And you can well imagine that if you have a voice in your head for which for some neurobiological reason doesn't feel like yours, uh, then, um, you know, the, the rationalization could be anything. And uh, you, you, it makes sense at that point to kind of start thinking somebody's putting them inside mm-hmm. your head because it's not a normal experience to have, to have voices in your head a, to have voices in your head, and B, to have them sound like someone else's. So right. Both of those things have to be true. But what follows often is a lot of theorizing, sometimes extremely elaborate theories. P- potentially, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you've ever yeah. met uh, someone who has this condition, I have, and uh, sometimes they can talk at great length about yeah, why if, this if, is happening. If the condition is very severe, yes, yeah. absolutely. Often big conspiracies and things like yeah. that. Um, and in and, and schizophrenia, you describe, at least some people think, is a kind of uh, uh, a problem with um, the sense of agency, of not knowing, uh, as you and I know, that a lot of the language that's bopping around in our brain is produced by us. Right. I got voices too. I just know they're all me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think hearing voices in your own head uh, happens even in healthy people. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the only difference is those voices still sound like they're yours and hence don't lead to the kind of distress and paranoia that, you know, someone with schizophrenia might feel. Uh, and it really comes down to brain mechanisms which have to refer back whatever's happening. So in this case, generating a voice or, uh, you know, picking up something, performing some action. Those actions, you know, have to be referred back to the eye and, and made to feel like they have been generated by you. So when you think about a voice, you have to, you know, move your vocal cords. And so that's a motor command going to your vocal cords. Uh, and you're producing that sound. And then the brain makes a copy of those motor commands, sends them to other parts of the brain, which then predict what the sensory consequences of that action are going to be. In this case, a, a sound that's produced. It compares the sound that's produced to what's been predicted. If they match up, then what's been produced is yours. And similarly, if you do some action, you know, that's the way it figures out that, oh, that's my action. And so the sense of agency seems to arise from making sure that 
the actual sensory consequences of an action and the predicted consequences match up. And if they don't, then they will feel like they're someone else's. Mm. And what might be happening in schizophrenia is this pathway that is responsible for creating the sense of agency is somehow not quite working well. And so a voice that otherwise would seem like yours now seems like someone else's. So you're describing uh, something that comes up in a number of these uh, conditions in explaining them, uh, what you call corollary uh, signals, is that right? Uh, corollary discharge. Discharge. Yeah, or it's called efference copy. So if I'm going to move my hand, then the brain is going to send motor commands to the hand, and it sends a copy of those commands to some other part of the brain that needs to make the prediction. Mm-hmm. So that copy, yeah. So when I initiate a movement in my hand, I'm going to wave to you, Anil, right yeah. now. I know that I actually initiated that because my brain has sent me a report saying, you know, by the way, you just sent a message to your hand to make it wave. And then I get some visual information. There's my hand waving. And yeah, it all lines up. It's all the way things should be. Right. But if I don't get that report Mm -hmm. that I initiated the action. It'll feel like someone else is making you do it. (laughs) Right. Because you can see that it's being you're you're waving your hand, but you don't have the feeling that you initiated that mm-hmm. you have lost that sense of agency. Mm-hmm. And again, th- these are kind of uh, scenarios that uh, you can now imagine how they could lead to paranoia. You- I could see how they could play into schizophrenia. Um, you've got a really interesting explanation. I know this is, I believe, it's speculative uh, about autism having to do with uh, mismatches in our knowledge of what our bodies are doing or the state of our bodies, right? Uh, so, relative to what what's really happening. Yeah. So uh, one of the main things that people uh, who are suffering from autism have a problem with is social relatedness to to actually uh, relate well to others. And and this has traditionally been ascribed to something called a, a deficit in the theory of mind, the ability to, um, you know, look into other people's minds, infer what someone else is thinking. Now, that's a behavioral cognitive uh, uh, issue. And uh, there is some uh, early work, still preliminary, I think, and uh, and somewhat speculative, that is suggesting that this kind of a problem with the theory of mind, which is a cognitive ability, may have to do with not having a clear perception of their own body. So in some sense, their bodily self is not forming or they are not as um, grounded in their own bodily self as one would be. And that then might be leading to downstream uh, cognitive and behavioral issues. But if I understand the theory right, the idea is that um, whereas... In normal human development, as we grow up, uh, at some point, I would think in early development, we start to get a coordinated sense of uh, what our body's doing, get a very clear sense, and we get very good at predicting, mm-hmm. right? So the brain is constantly – it feels like it knows what's going on, right? right? Uh, unlike the s- scenario we just talked about where I wasn't getting the report on my hand waving and therefore <laughs> attributed it to someone else. Right. So if that's happening, the result then is that you're constantly surprised and thrown off balance, sort of knocked around by circumstances in ways that the rest of us aren't. Right. So what seems to be happening here, at least that's the theory at this point, is that your brain uh, has to have a model of the body in order to do its job properly, which is to regulate the body, help the body navigate the environment, do various things. And this model needs to be constantly refined, right? So every time you do an action, if the brain predicts that there are going to be certain consequences, uh, uh, you know, when you do that action, the way it has to refine its models is by making sure that it gets feedback from the body itself 
and uh, you know makes sure that oh, what I predicted is actually what happened. Uh, and uh, and if for some reason there was a mismatch, then it can update its models and mm-hmm. and keep keep its internal models of the body up to date. And what seems to be happening in uh, in autism is that the kind of signals that need to come from the body uh, have too much noise in them. That th- there's not enough signal to noise ratio to allow the brain to keep its models updated. What that then means is that every time somebody with autism encounters a signal or you know some sensation instead of the brain knowing what that is it always seems new it always seems like they're dealing with new information and and, and the brain doesn't get used to uh, things as you would otherwise so buffeted by surprises shocks jarring moments which you can imagine would have an extreme emotional impact. And and that aligns with some of the symptomology of autism, right? Wanting to be alone, you know, finding social circumstances really difficult. Uh, difficult, difficult. Yeah. And even sensory, uh, you know, when you think about how uh, difficult children with autism find, you know, sensations around them, they, they don't like, uh, you know, too many sort of vibrant sensations like texture in food. They kind of prefer things that are, in some sense, predictable. It's because, again, if you buy into this theory, then what's happening is the brain is unable to kind of make predictions about what's to be expected. And so in order to reduce the amount of surprise that they encounter in in their environment, they tend to just stick to uh, simple things, um, sensations that are otherwise that would overload them and they find it really hard to deal with it. You know, what comes out, and I know quite deliberately as your book develops, is this importance of the body, of the physical being, uh, whereas we might have started thinking, we're just going to talk about the brain and the mind. Uh, who needs the rest of it? Brain in a jar would be just fine. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, every story, almost every story reinforces the importance of our physicality. To me, that's probably the message that uh, – I got from doing all this research is that the body is really, really important. Um, your sense of self begins with the body. And in a sense, yourself has to be first grounded in the body and everything about the body. And when I say the body, the body is obviously integrated with the brain. So that whole brain-body complex should be uh, working well. And, and then the rest of our sense of self will take off from there. But if the grounding is somehow you know, shaken up, then it has lots of downstream consequences. You talked to a, um, is she a neuroscientist or a psychiatrist? Pia Kantos. Pia Kantos, yeah. She's actually a social scientist. Social scientist. Mm-hmm. She holds a position that in Alzheimer's, uh, whereas some people describe the extreme end stage of Alzheimer's, having lost all your memories, as being pretty much without a self. Right. She disagrees with that. She believes that you still have a self, and, and that self is grounded in some way in the body. Right. And, and uh, so this is something that you will you know, hear from a lot of people who are taking care of patients with Alzheimer's, that you know, once a person is in the late stages of Alzheimer's disease, you tend to feel as if they are gone, that there is no one in there, that this, the self that I knew, the person that I knew is no more. Uh, somehow that's the perception from the outside when you know looking at or, or when you're taking care of someone with end-stage Alzheimer's. They're unable to recognize people, uh, very, very close relatives, or, or you know have any kind of interaction that is meaningful. So there's definitely a loss of the n- cognitive aspects of one's narrative. What Pia Contos is saying that the narrative that we are is not just cognitive, that a lot of it is embodied. 
that it's actually in our bodies. And depending on your circumstances, the, the, the environment that you're in, some of this narrative will come out. And in Alzheimer's, at least, uh, you know, mid to late stage Alzheimer's doesn't destroy that part of your narrative. So you may be unable to communicate, you may be unable to even put together two words uh, together to have any kind of interaction. But if you find yourself in a situation where the body can have its say, then certain aspects of your story, your life story will reappear. And uh, and she talks of a few cases where she's observed this in elderly people with late stage Alzheimer's. Well, by your narrative or your history, your biography, whatever, do you mean simply habits of movement? Do you mean, you know, sort of body language? Or is there more to it than that? Well, when you think of you know, what we are in terms of the narrative. It's a story in our heads about who we are. It's a story we tell ourselves. It's a story we tell others. And it's a story that's formed because of things we've experienced. Uh, And we usually just tend to think of it as a cognitive thing. That's something I can consciously recall and tell someone or tell myself. But when you think about, uh, you know, things like riding a bicycle or or, uh, some other physical skill that you picked up, uh, playing soccer, uh, now that also is part of your narrative. You know, if you are somebody who rides a bicycle or plays soccer, that's part of your story. You don't necessarily have to cognitively recall it. But that skill is actually in your body now. and And it can reappear given the right circumstances. Uh, and I'm not saying that someone with late stage Alzheimer's would be able to ride a bicycle. That's not the point. But th- this one example where uh, Pia Contos talked about, uh, she was in a you know elderly care home in in Canada where uh, it was a Jewish uh, facility where uh, all the elderly people in this care home were waiting to go up to the bima, the pulpit, to say a prayer during a Jewish high holiday and one of her patients had was standing in line and he was an elderly gentleman who really had very little uh, cognitive ability left and she was really worried that uh, you know what would he do if he went up to the pulpit and he goes up to the pulpit and says a prayer with really you know highly proficiently and her contention is that what happened there was not a cognitive act it was something embodied that his embodied selfhood uh, made that possible because of the presence of all the other things that kind of were cues to the body. And, and again, when one says body, you're talking of the brain-body complex. Clearly, right? yeah, the, the brain is involved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so we shouldn't just yeah. talk of the body yeah. in isolation. Using, using the body loosely there. Yeah, so, and she talks of how, you know, the presence of the rabbi, the presence of the congregation, the, you know, his, the touch of, the, of his hand on the Torah, all of these things elicited in him uh, a habit. You're right. I mean, it is a habit, but it's something, you know, uh, habits are also part of your narrative. This is uh, uh, another reminder, too, that the idea of a self, I mean, you could look at it as though it's some kind of entity that resides in us, but other people have a hand in it, too. I mean, it's defined by our relations to others. I mean, at least some aspects of ourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what is a self or what isn't or who has a self and who doesn't? is often in the eye of the beholder, too. I mean, I know people who've dealt with their elderly uh, parents suffering from Alzheimer's who are very attached to the intellectual side, and they think that when the person loses that, they're gone. And I know other people who are very at ease with that and say, oh, no, the personality's still there, you know, she's still there, he's still there. Yeah. Uh, Very much because of their own prejudices, uh, you know, or preferences. Yeah, it may not even be a prejudice. I think we are, as human beings, we we are 
you know, capable of kind of inferring aspects of other people kind of, you know, unconsciously. So these are perceptions that may be arising in their own minds. Uh, so it may not even be a prejudice. It's just how they are wired to read someone yeah. because of cognitive responses, to read someone because of sort of bodily physical responses. So who knows what's going on in their heads. Mm. Now, throughout your book, um, you aren't just describing these conditions. You are relating some of the neurological evidence that's associated with them. But as you say, throughout, it's a correlation most of the time. Mm -hmm. You can look at what parts of the brain are impaired or inactive versus those that are active in certain kinds of states and say, well, we got a correlation here. Right. It's tricky though, right? I mean, first of all, fMRIs, the machines that we use to study brain activity, really crude. They're looking at huge expanses. We think of maybe a centimeter as being small, but in brain terms, that's as big as a country. That's right? a lot of tissue. Yeah, it's a lot and of tissue. And it can do a lot of stuff. It's like millions yeah. upon millions of connections, right. maybe billions in that little area. Yeah. So when we say, oh, the, you know, the amygdala is active, well, that might be saying like the eastern seaboard of the United States is active. You know? <laughs> exactly. So, so there's a problem with resolution. I mean, we are definitely getting better. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the resolving power of these, um, you know, technologies. But uh, even so, I think what you're getting are snapshots, right? Yeah. You're getting the snapshot of someone's brain at a particular point in their life. So it, the snapshot doesn't give you a sense of their life history. It doesn't tell you about their interactions. It doesn't tell you much beyond that one day that you took the scan. Uh, so unless it's a clear-cut case of neurological damage, uh, you know, it's tricky inferring too much from one scan. Mm, mm. And then it strikes me that on the other end of the explanatory um, apparatus, there's also a caveat to be made. And that is when you're looking at the brain, you're not really sure how it's working or what it's doing, but you do see that it's active. When you are associating that, the other side of the equation is a description of a mental state or a behavior or a, um, a characteristic. And those change over time and are very cultural. So if you look at the old phrenology maps, you know, people laugh at phrenology, the idea that you could uh, deduce a person's personality traits from the bumps on their heads. Now, that strikes me as, hey, that's just a predecessor of anatomical localism. That's not that dumb an idea. Um, but what is interesting is those old phrenological charts have um, characteristics that we now consider completely uh, antiquated, like one has sublimity, imitativeness, acquisitiveness, constructiveness, parental love, secretiveness. And we go, ha, 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 how silly. But what about our terms? They're all culturally based. They're all based on psychological uh, ideas that we have that aren't necessarily super scientifically founded, right? So when we say jealousy or suspicion, I, I remember you saying that there's a part of the brain that becomes active in, when you're suspicious, you know. I'm thinking those terms aren't ones that neuroscientists have come up with. They're, they're inheriting a whole bunch of, uh, you know, sort of cultural baggage and assigning uh, those kinds of definitions to behavior and, and personality traits. Uh, I think so. These are kind of coarse definitions. Yeah. So yeah. there'll be intersections between, you know, many different so, um, characteristics that you might pick. Uh, I completely agree. I think, uh, you know, the, the part about phrenology that I've uh, found difficult was the bumps on the head bit. But yeah. you're right. I think in terms of characteristics, of course, you know, inquisit inquisitiveness, that's certainly something that we have. And maybe there's a part of the brain that uh, is involved in that. But uh, yeah, I doubt uh, it. No I doubt to... it. I think that's way too high level. I think 
we should be looking at lower level abstractions probably when we describe yeah brain areas potentially and and yeah. and, and, and that i think that's the problem with these kinds of studies is yeah. that depending on how you you know how fine grained your yeah. uh, you know description is of the trait uh you'll run into this or that problem well even with those caveats and and others in mind let's uh do a little exercise here based on all of the you know all of the research that you've done and all the experts you've talked to um and all of the sort of psychological slash cognitive slash neuroscientific evidence we've got and um maybe peel away the onion tell me what you think a sense of self is composed of so in the book i kind of take this approach of looking at the self as subject and self as object uh which i found really useful in trying to understand some something very basic about the self. So what I mean by self as subject and self as object is um in the book I take an example of a sentence like I feel happy. Now happiness uh, is very much a part of your sense of self at the moment that you're experiencing happiness. Uh but in that sentence is a clue. Uh I feel happy. The same I you can half an hour later for some reason might might say I feel sad or you know some other emotion. Now the very formulation of the sentence gives us clues as to what the structure of the self might be where happiness sadness in this context are self as object they fall into the self as object category and then the the thing or the entity experiencing sadness or experiencing happiness is still part of yourself but that's the self as subject the subject of the experience and the self as subject is something very elusive it's it's really hard to figure out how that comes about and you know wh- where that might be you know constructed in the brain how that might be constructed is it constructed by the brain um but all the self as object i think something like sense of agency sense of body ownership mm-hmm. um you know uh, your first person perspective your emotions your your sense of being your emotions you can dissociate all those things from the eye they're all things that are ascribed to the eye they're all right. things that are associated they all have the to eye. be somehow referred back to the eye mm-hmm. so the big question really when it comes to talking about the self uh, and whether there is a self or n- no self has to do with explaining the appearance of the eye all the other things like your narrative the cognitive narrative that you are or the embodied narrative that you are all of those things seem to be self as object uh you know things that have to be somehow referred back to the self as subject and 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 all or most of the conditions you describe are problems with the self as object right right so so, so there's so still when, an i saying i am dead in the case of kotars yeah. or I am over there in the case of a doppelganger experience right, right. or I am hearing voices that aren't my own in the case of right. schizophrenia so the right. I as subject is persistent through all of them I think that's the thing that is very revealing of something basic about the self that the I never goes away now in each of these conditions you're taking away one aspect of the self so something like sense of agency in schizophrenia is uh, comes apart a little bit uh, sense of body ownership or body part ownership in BID um you know or emotions are kind of uh, separated out in depersonalization from the from the i but they're all taking off one aspect of the self the i still remains mm-hmm. now what is unanswered and uh, difficult to figure out is what happens if if say the i your entire sense of self was hypothetical purposes here consists of 20 aspects 
and we're just taking one aspect out and saying the eye still remains. Mm-hmm. What if all 20 were to go away? Mm-hmm. Would the eye still remain? And that we don't know. So that's where the philosophers come in. And, you know, there are people who say that the eye itself is something that appears because of the interaction of all these aspects. Uh, And there are others who say, no, there is something that is experiencing the various aspects of the sense of self. This is the no self versus self uh, divide or debate. Yeah, (laughs) I found myself trying to imagine myself, trying to imagine. I found, um, first of all, it's very hard to get away from that language. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched Game of Thrones, but there's a character, the man of many faces, who uh, is part of a, I don't know, an organization, a society, a cult, a group of devotees who extinguish themselves and become no one. So he refers to himself as a man. He says, a man can do this or a man can do that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I buy that, Uh, you know, that that's the extinction of the self. I think that's just a bit of grammatical trickery there. Possible. I mean, yeah. I haven't watched Game of Thrones. No, no. What so, I mean no. is, what I mean is, in trying to imagine a being, a sentient being mm. that has no self, uh, no POV, no perspective, they wouldn't even be able to say a man is this or that. Right, and, and and that's you know, philosophers will argue about that point. Like when you when you say that, oh, there could be a state where there is no I, then who or what is going to come back and report to you? <laughs> and by the way, I. You may be able to answer this question. Did the Buddha use the first person singular? You know what? I, I actually haven't thought about it in great detail. I should look look up the writings. But uh, I don't think he referred to himself in the third person. <laughs> he didn't. I don't think he did. <laughs> so uh, even he probably said I. Yeah, but you know, you know, when you read about the Buddha, you're really reading about things others have written about him. He probably never wrote anything. Right, uh, right, and, right. You know, lots things about the Buddha really things that were written centuries after. True, true. But, you know, let's just for the sake of argument say that the the teachings uh, that were, you know, dutifully and one hopes sort of wisely codified by his followers don't have him saying – referring to himself in the third person despite the fact that he, you know, did something to not – maybe not extinguish himself but enlarge himself or what did he – Well, I think the the Buddhist sense of – liberation is essentially losing attachment to yeah. aspects of the self. Yeah. Right. So not being attached to your narrative. Right. Not seeing the body as, oh, this is me. But uh, the self so, as subject may still be there. Well, most Buddhist traditions will argue that even the self as subject is an appearance. Uh-huh. So even that's an illusion that comes about because of the interaction of the various uh, psychophysical elements that comprise the body and mind. So they will go all the way. Saying, so so a, you can really do away with the self. Yeah. Uh, and then what is it? What What is left is some kind of pure consciousness. Uh, oh, uh, you get into very dicey territory here oh, uh, <laughs> in terms of what is left. Like, again, even consciousness in some traditions will be argued as an appearance. Ah. Uh, whereas there are other traditions, not necessarily Buddhism, but uh, yeah, actually maybe even cer- certain traditions within Buddhism and certainly certain Hindu traditions will argue that the the subject uh, is uh, comes about because of a witness consciousness, uh, a mm. consciousness that witnesses everything without uh, being personal. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but these are all particular answers that each tradition gives to the to the question of where does the I come from 
and I don't think we have empirical evidence to really say what's going on. I mean, these are grounds for debate. This is where this is the heart of the debate. Well, what is your position, Anil? Um, I'm going to be agnostic about it, honestly, because my sense is that uh, there is a true debate here, and uh, and I think uh, I am going to be open about it. I would like to see where this goes. I would like to see where science takes us, if science can take us closer to the truth. Well, could science provide an answer that has anything to say about the truth of, say, Buddhist precepts? Or do those belong in completely different no, arenas? No, I think, I think they, they inform each other. I, I mean, because, you know, when, when it comes to consciousness and studies of the self, I think subjective experiences, the ability to really look inward is very, very important. It's not enough just to have objective brain scans of 100 people. You're not going to figure out, you know, a whole lot. Right. Uh, right. So you need the ability to look inward. And, and, and one of the things Buddhism does is gives us so much uh, material from that perspective, from the first-person subjective you know, experience of people who are really trained to look at their own states of mind. Well, I could imagine a situation like this. Uh, you find a bodhisattva out there. Uh, you stick him in an fMRI. <laughs> he or she says, um, myself has dissolved. I am part of complete oneness. I'm not even experiencing consciousness as you ordinary people would refer to it. Meanwhile, the scientist is saying, oh, yeah, the something's lighting up and the other part's not lighting up. What do you do with that information? Correlate. That's all you can do. You can, you can only correlate, right? I mean, you have on one side you have objective data and the other side you have a subjective experience. I think at this point in, uh, of you know, uh, scientific endeavor, all you can say is correlation. I like it. This reminds me of, I think it was um, Richard Feynman who said of the Copenhagen interpretation in, uh, in physics that it, it really boils down to shut up and calculate. So Anil's position is shut up and correlate. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. Uh, let's leave the shut up aside, but it is correlation <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm dubious, though, about whether the two can ever ever really have that much to say about each other? Uh, would inf information coming from any kind of diagnostic apparatus, any kind of, uh, any kind of uh, imaging apparatus, ever tell us what we really want to know about what the enlightened one is experiencing, for instance? Um, you know, I, no, but that's, you don't even have to go all the way to enlightened ones. Yes, I mean, no, when you, I, you know, when you When you think of what someone with schizophrenia is telling you, right? Yeah. I mean, there is no way for someone from the outside to have any knowledge of the truth of it. You right. have to accept the fact that their subjective experience is real for them. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then you do the correlation studies. And, and, of course, you know, if you do enough studies, then correlations start making more and more sense and you start seeing mechanistic explanations. Uh, but uh, I'm not pessimistic about sort of these two uh, ways of knowing, meeting at some point. We are far away from that. But... I can't imagine why not eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, but but for that to happen, both sides, A, will have to accept the others mm -hmm. knowing as valid. Mm. And, uh, and they'll have to get pretty fine-grained and pretty rigorous about what they're telling each other. Well, I think we all know that even if, let's say, and, and it's perfectly plausible, I suppose, that, uh, you know, enough fMRI studies or some other instrument that's even more uh, sensitive – could tell us exactly what the neurological correlates of love were 
it wouldn't change the experience of love, nor would it change the importance of love yeah. for us in any way. Yeah. You know, a, a point I kept coming back to um, in reading your book, too, is that we are dealing in, in many cases with our own minds, making up explanations, as we talked about earlier, using um, whatever apparatus is given to us by our culture. Um, so explanatory categories obviously change a lot from culture to culture and from historical period to historical period. So now we might have explanations that revolve around technology in the case of, say, a paranoid schizophrenic, whereas before, long ago, it would have been demons and, you know, divine influences. Divine influences. Ghosts, right? Yeah. So so these things are constantly changing inside of us. And uh, if the self is a construct, and if it's a construct maybe, that our mind and its desire to create meaning out of all the vast amount of information it has to process. Uh, maybe the explanation of all these things comes together in some kind of simplified idea of, oh, yeah, I'm a self, I'm a me, or an I. Um, that very definition could be culturally contingent, you know, in some ways. And it could be different from culture to culture. Could be. I think, uh, you know, the, the self has... In, in individualistic societies like uh, the U.S. versus very collectivist societies yeah. would feel very different. Very different. I mean, we are at the height of self-glamorization, of self-deification now. I mean, it, the selfie. <laughs> the selfie. I'm really worried about the selfie, uh, I think, because, you know, uh, you can imagine how that is going to change perceptions of your own self, uh, both cognitively and in terms of your body image, all sorts of things, right? And all these things play into the self that you are. Oh, yeah, and, and the GoPro, which you attach to yourself, whose slogan is be a hero. And you attach the GoPro to yourself and then go out and, and do heroic things and, and, and make a movie of your of your life. Right, and, uh, and this comes back to what we were talking about. This is a conceptual part of who you are. And, and you're, you've changed the idea of what one should be or what one can be. And once that idea has set in and it's become part of your narrative, it's in the nature of the self to remain consistent with that. It's going to try and do those things. And it will feel, you will feel bodily distress if some aspect of that conceptual self is attacked. And I think that therein lies the problem. I think we really have to watch the concepts that we have about ourselves because eventually that place it back through the body. The feedback mechanisms of the conceptual self are still via the body. You're going to feel, you know, if somebody s says something bad about you, that's yes. a completely conceptual thing. Absolutely. But you feel it in the pit of Absolutely. your stomach. And the expression that people use when they, um, you know, feel attacked, either verbally, let's say someone trolls them on the internet, or, or if their property is, you know, trespassed. Uh, you know what they say? They say, I feel violated. Which yes. is a physical kind of expression. Which is a physical expression, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. and we know that. We know, we feel bad in our stomachs or wherever we mm -hmm. feel stress. We feel mm -hmm. it in the body. The body is the medium through which all these things uh, are expressed. And, uh, and that's why I think some of the techniques that involve sort of paying attention to the body are so important. Right. You know, all of the conditions you talk about are cases where the sense of self is impaired and, and usually weakened or diminished in some way uh, or, or disintegrated in some way. But then, of course, there's other conditions out there where it's aggrandized and enlarged. 
You didn't talk about Trump syndrome, for instance. Narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I end my epilogue with kind of a nod to that. Uh, or rather, I end my book, and, and I, the epilogue is a nod to the idea that the problem is ourself. Mm-hmm. You know, we are prone to narcissism, some of us more than others. But in a sense, uh, you know, because the self that we have now is also a conceptual thing. It's not just a bodily self. And the conceptual part of ourself doesn't have any boundaries. It basically, we can imagine whatever we want it to, you know, to be. Well, I would say in the case of the aforementioned Trump, uh, you know, he actually has his name stamped on all these buildings. His self extends out into the the public sector and the uh, the infrastructure. Yeah. Potentially, <laughs> uh, potentially. I mean, uh, I have no idea. Again, I'm not going to get into his head, but at the same time, uh, you know, we you. don't There's we don't have to we don't have to go that far, right? Yeah. We 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 can see that within ourselves over the course of our own lives that we've done things mm-hmm. where, you know, my concept about who I am is actually a detriment to just being a decent human being. Mm. And uh, and it's that conceptual part of the self that I think is a problem, that it doesn't have limits. And un- un- until we start recognizing that it is a construct, that it is something that we put together without, you know, knowing sometimes, uh, so in some sense, I think uh, we're all prone to that, some more than others. Are, are you full of yourself, having written this very interesting book? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Um, I, I have to watch myself. Uh, yeah, thank you for that question. <laughs> and Neil, it's been great talking to you. really enjoyed uh, this, our second interview. Thank you so much for having me here. Anil Ananthaswamy's new book is The Man Who Wasn't There, Investigations into the Strange New Science of the Self. And as I mentioned, I uh, did a previous interview with Anil back in 2010 on his book, The Edge of Physics, A Journey to Earth's Extremes to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe. And you can find that interview on our website, SeventhAvenueProject.com. You just have to scroll down to the 2010 entries. Well, um, I noticed in listening back to this new interview with Anil that he was admirably measured and lucid in his explanations, whereas I wasn't always so much. I get caught up in the energy of a conversation and don't always explain myself well, uh, but um, I have a chance now to straighten things out, and I'd like to just uh, clarify a couple points. First of all, uh, there was that bit where I was talking about the neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran Uh, and his work with amputees who experience phantom limb pain. And I said that he had used mirrors to trick their brains into thinking that the phantom limb was still there. Uh, That might have been confusing because, I mean, you don't want the phantom limb to still be there. Isn't that the problem? Well, here is how uh, his procedure uh, that he invented works, at least how it's worked in some cases with people plagued by a sense that their phantom limb is in a cramped and painful position, and they can't move it. Uh, Maybe because that was the case before the amputation took place, and that kind of image of the limb is now frozen in their brains. So say, for instance, uh, that a person has had a left hand amputated, and it's the one that's having the phantom limb pain. Well, what Ramachandran has done is create this thing called a mirror box, in which uh, you take that person and you have them stick their left stump in the box and their right intact hand, and then tell them to move both hands, both the missing left hand and the good right hand. And what they'll see is their right hand moving just as they're telling it to, and they'll also see a mirror image of the right hand 
in the place where their left hand used to be, also moving correctly in response to the commands they're sending. And that visual input apparently convinces their brain that they are able to move their phantom limb and that it is no longer cramped and paralyzed. And the pain goes away, at least, again, in some instances. Now, not in all cases. And the theory behind it, the idea that the visual stimulus is sort of redrawing the body's map of its extremities, sort of the way the rubber hand illusion worked, well, that is still very much in dispute and nobody's proven anything yet, as far as I know. Uh, Another thing I should uh, clarify is uh, my comment on paranoid schizophrenia, where I said that the explanations have changed over time and according to culture. Uh, I didn't mean the explanations by um, psychologists, though those have also changed. I meant the kinds of explanations that people suffering from paranoid schizophrenia come up with for things like the voices in their head. So in the past, they might have uh, talked about demons or ghosts or, or maybe God speaking directly to them. Uh, Now you tend to hear more accounts uh, involving things like chips in the brain and the CIA, obviously um, shifting with the times. And lastly, uh, one other thing I'd like to amend a little bit. I said that um, one misgiving I have about some uh, fMRI studies of the brain is that they're correlating areas of uh, brain activity with um, psychological categories that themselves might be suspect and certainly subject to all kinds of cultural um, assumptions and influences. And I was thinking about uh, studies like one I found that was correlating uh, brain activity with traits like neuroticism, extroversion, and agreeableness. But I should also mention that, of course, uh, fMRI studies are being done on what seem to be lower-level cognitive functions Um, that may be a lot less culturally loaded. And I'm thinking of things like spatial cognition or speech perception or quantitative skills. Um, That may be less problematic. Or maybe not. Maybe uh, there's a good objection to those too. Anyway, that is all the um, elaborating and correcting I'm going to do this time around. I hope you join me next week. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until then.